Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Harper's Ferry National Park is located at the confluence of the Potomac River and the Shenandoah River in the easternmost corner of what is now West Virginia. This tiny national park, just over one square mile in size, is the location of the 1859 raid led by John Brown, a white abolitionist. Outraged by the sustained existence of slavery in the southern United States at that time, John Brown and his armed supporters snuck across the river at night, attempting to take over the government arsenal and arm the nearby enslaved people and foment a revolution. Brown's intended efforts were ultimately unsuccessful and resulted in his conviction for treason and death by hanging. Nonetheless, he foreshadowed the growing discontent of slavery that would lead to the Civil War that began three years later. In this edition of Radio Curious, we join George Best, a National Park Ranger, on a tour of a portion of Harpers Ferry National Park and stories about its rich history. He tells his stories amid the background sounds of the rivers, railroads, and other machinery, and begins with a description of the foundry, the largest building in Harper's Ferry, with a 90-foot-high smokestack. This is a massive factory. It will, on average, produce 10,000 weapons a year for all just under 600,000 weapons in total during its lifetime. Behind you, these foundations, these are the two arsenal buildings where the weapons were stored. And where we are right now, this is called Arsenal Square, this is where the weapons would have been tested. Each weapon is supposed to be loaded with a double charge and fired to make sure it's not going to blow up in a soldier's face. So as an armory worker, you have some incentive to do your work right. This is the complex that George Washington envisioned and eventually would be built here. Now, it's all, not all built overnight. It takes many years to build up to this. But even in its early days, during the War of 1812, for example, its first real test, our first major war after the Revolution, it averages that full 10,000 weapons a year. And it churns everything out. And these arsenals are empty as they have just shipped out everything to supply our soldiers out in Ohio, Louisiana, and Baltimore and Washington, D.C. These guns are going all over the place. Also, because of its close proximity to Washington, D.C., Harper's Ferry has a lot of weird stuff that the Springfield Armory in Massachusetts doesn't have because we're close to all the congressmen and the patent office. So anything new that wants to be tested out, it happens here. Harper's Ferry is also producing rifles, which Springfield does not do until 1855. Harper's Ferry starts this in 1803. And also, Harper's Ferry will be the site of the first true example of interchangeable parts being produced in the world. In 1811, a man named John Hall, he's from Maine, he's tinkering around and he invents a way to produce truly interchangeable parts. Just in case we're not 100% clear on what this means, think about anything you use today. For example, a light bulb. That's a really good example. As long as you see the size of the socket and you know exactly what kind of light bulb you need, you can go into Home Depot, Walmart, Lowe's, whatever, 
walk up, be like, I need this kind of light bulb. Oh, we got three different brands. Well, they're all going to fit. Screw it in. Bingo. Done. These are all interchangeable within the same model. Prior to this, no, not so much. You know, things may look very similar, and even to the naked eye, they may look exactly the same. Because they're being handmade, things are going to be ever so slightly off. So, for example, in weaponry, if, you know, you break a screw and you need a replacement, it's not going to fit perfectly. Also, if you and a buddy are cleaning your guns next to each other and you get your parts mixed up, oh, it's going to be a nightmare putting your guns back together because his screws are not going to fit in your gun and vice versa. And trying to separate all those, really difficult. So, John Hall has invented a weapon, a rifle, that is completely interchangeable. It is all machine-made. Everything is exactly the same. 1813, it gets tested. And in 1819, the government doesn't just give him a contract. They hire him. They make him an assistant master armorer of Harper's Ferry. They build a whole separate factory down on what's called Virginius and Hall Islands. Starts out with just a few storage sheds, which he very quickly turns into a state-of-the-art factory. And by 1823, 1824, he is in full production. So that when the government comes to uh, do an investigation to see, you know, are we getting our money's worth? He has a hundred guns ready for Congress. He takes them all apart, mixes up all the parts, everything goes back together perfectly. No other country in the world has achieved this. They get close, and Eli Whitney, as I'm sure many of your textbooks in school said, invented this. He got really close, but it was all just very careful handwork. John Hall is the only one doing this 100% by machine. And this will revolutionize the very way we live. Over the next 20, 30 years, the American Industrial Revolution will be very focused around this idea of interchangeability and mass production and machines. Much more so than the great industrialized nations of Great Britain and France and what will eventually turn into Germany. They don't have this. And they start to realize this after a while. They start referring to this as the American system of manufacturing. And they want to know, how do they do it? What's their secret? So in the 1850s, the British, the largest, most powerful, richest, industrialized nation on Earth, wants to know what piddly-poo little Cousin Jonathan, that's what they called us, Cousin Jonathan, was doing across the pond there. They send a commission to the United States, and they go look at several large industrial cities. Among these are Pittsburgh, Chicago, and of course... Harper's Ferry. By this point, Harper's Ferry and Springfield, everything between the two factories is interchangeable. So you can have a gun made in Harper's Ferry, you march up north with it, you break a part off, and you can get a Springfield part put on, works perfectly. And they start sneaking around trying to figure out, what are these guys doing? And they start hiring American workers. James Henry Burton, the master armorer here at Harper's Ferry, will take a nice, big, juicy paycheck to get on a ship and go to England and take over the Enfield Rifle Works in England, their largest producer of military weapons. But even then, by the Civil War, when we're importing large numbers of these Enfield rifles, they're still not interchangeable. The American ones are. And the, many of the soldiers who have Enfield start to grumble about it because the parts don't fit quite right. They want those Springfields over there that do fit quite right. And so this... It's kind of like, we are in space-age technology here in Harper's Ferry compared to much of the rest of the world. This is truly the heart of the American Industrial Revolution in this place. 
Now, there are a few fun stories on the sidelines here. We've got lots of labor issues that pop up. The biggest one involves alcohol. A lot of the armory workers in the early days, they were allowed to drink on the job. They would keep big jugs of whiskey on their work tables, and they would pound it down, and so long as they met their quota, didn't matter. They're getting the job done. We're good. Yes, you drinking on the job while you're making firearms. Very smart. So, and of course, whiskey was the big drink at the time. And eventually this gets to be a bit of a problem, and they decide no more drinking in the armory buildings. And much to their surprise, there's no pushback from the workers. They thought there would be a strike. Nothing. They do notice, however, the workers are opening and closing the windows very frequently. And what was eventually discovered was, um, and there are different versions of how this goes, we'll go with the most common one we see. They had stuck hooks outside of the building, or laid it on the ground if they're on the first floor, big buckets of whiskey. And they would lean out with their cup, so they're technically outside with their cup. <laughs> Alright, close the window, back to work. And so they're t- drinking, still, but they're not inside the armory buildings. They're out in the open air. So they found a way around the rule. And then, probably the most tragic and largest event to take place in Harper's Ferry. The big spark in Harper's Ferry's history will take place with the armory in this little building right here. Now, I've described it was built in 1848, our newest building. Also, that cupola on top, that wasn't added until late 1859, early 1860, so take that off. This is the armory's fire engine house. It also has a little room for the night watchman. His job is to go around with a lantern and make sure kids don't play in the middle of the armory and there aren't any fires. And if there is a fire, there's a bell tower nearby. He can go out, ring that, sound the alarm. The fire brigade comes out, they put it out. Well, this will become more famous as John Brown's Fort. John Brown is a white man, born in 1800 in Torrington, Connecticut, and he will grow up an ardent abolitionist. Indeed, he will say in a story later in life that he vowed his life to abolition at age 12. That something happened that made him really an abolitionist. And he believed that he was one of God's instruments in making this happen. A religion was a very important driving force in his life, and it would guide him on this continued path of ardent, stern abolition. And so he will grow up, and regardless of what he did, he had many, many failed business practices. He was a, he was a very hard worker, had no sense of money whatsoever, was incredibly stubborn, and usually any discussions, whether they involved money or whatever, would always somehow turn to either religion or slavery. And so he rarely actually got many of his businesses going. And in many cases, he cost himself and a lot of other people a lot of money. But he never gave up on the hope of ending slavery in the United States. He would build a little secret compartment in his barn in Pennsylvania to hide slaves on the Underground Railroad as they moved north to freedom in Canada. He never joined any uh, abolitionist organizations, but he worked closely with many of them. But finally, by the 1850s, he declares war on slavery. Literal, with guns, war. He fights out in Kansas, becomes a household name for the Potawatomi Massacre and the little fight on Osawatomi Creek. And then he has a much grander plan. With a small band of men, he will sneak into Harper's Ferry, which one is in Virginia. At the time, there is no West Virginia. Virginia has the largest slave population in the United States. A little over 10% of all the slaves in the United States live in Virginia. 
In fact, Virginia has a surplus of slaves. Now, how awful does that sound? A surplus of human beings. And they are selling them to the, the deep south on the cotton plantations and getting very rich off of it. They're basically running a human baby factory. And, of course, we've got the Harper's Ferry Armory and Arsenal here. So, John Brown is thinking, large recruiting ground for an army that I can help the slaves fight for their own freedom. I can train them to be soldiers. Those who cannot fight, I can make a big highway in the mountains and take them up to Canada to freedom. Those who wish to fight can stay with me. I will arm them. And when we come into Harper's Ferry, this will be the great trumpet blow for freedom. He wants to take whatever weapons he can, sneak out of here, burn anything he can't carry with him so it can't be used against him, and then the mountains are the key. Hide up there. Dart out every so often. But if you have the high ground, you have a big advantage, and that is where he will hide. He sneaks into town October 16, 1859, with a mixed group of white and African Americans, 21 men. They will spread out throughout the town. They will take some several prominent citizens hostage, but eventually, on this next morning on the 17th, the militia begin to turn out. Things start to go wrong. The first raider killed is right about where this uh, fire hydrant is today. His name's Dangerfield Newby, a former slave. The first civilian casualty of the raid, in fact, the first casualty overall, is a free African-American named Hayward Shepard. Shot because J Brown had stopped the train, and he went out to investigate. But it was dark and rainy. He heard Brown's men yell, HALT! But none of the men with him, and Shepard himself never heard that word before. And so they turned tail and ran. They saw strangers in the dark with guns. Those strangers in the dark opened fire. The only man killed is Hayward Shepard, a free African-American, one of the people John Brown wants to help. And that will kind of set the tone for the rest of this. It goes very badly. By the end of the 16th, John Brown and his remaining men are crammed in this little building here. This is where he's forted himself up, thus John Brown's fort. He will knock a few holes in some of the walls so he can stick his guns out and shoot out at the militia. The militia charge forward a few times and they're unable to get inside the building. They are able to rescue a few hostages from the watchman's room. That's really about it. Meanwhile, word has reached Washington, D.C. of what is happening here. And the only federal troops available are all 100 United States Marines. So they board trains with two cannons. And President James Buchanan finds the highest-ranking Army officer who is actually capable of moving. Winfield Scott... Um, was uh, very old, weighed about 300 pounds, was arthritic, um, had gout, um, and so he wasn't. He was still very sharp in the head, but movement not so much. Also, keep in mind when I say he's 300 pounds. Also, remember the guy is six foot five, so he's a massive man. Also, if you ever find a picture of his horse, <laughs> <laughs> so we can't really send him out, even though he's a brilliant military commander. No, but the next highest ranking man we have available. As a colonel, home on leave just across the river in Arlington, Virginia. Robert E. Lee. So they snag him. And there's this little lieutenant named uh, James Stewart, or Jeb Stewart, who's been harassing the patent office about this new saddle he's invented. I'm like, yeah, why don't you go off with Lee? There'll be honor and glory out there. And so he attaches himself to Lee as an aide-de-camp. Lee will come here in charge of the Marines, take command of all the militia out here. So he's got about a 1,000 men under his command. Brown has at most ten men left. Ten of the Marines will stay across the river with the two cannon, then the other ninety will march into town. He will split them into three teams. Team one, twelve men armed with sledgehammers to bash the doors down. Team two, 
They're the, they're the next in line. They're the men with their muskets and bayonets at the ready for the assault. Team 3, everyone else, muskets and bayonets, ready to go fill in as Team 1 and Team 2 do their job. So Team 1 comes down. Lieutenant Israel Green, the actual commander of the Marine Company, charge down. They start bashing on the doors. Brown has reinforced them, and so the sledgehammers are unable to knock their way through. Team 2 comes forward, and they find a ladder. They'll pick this up and use it as a battering ram and bash against the door again and again. And finally, they break open part of the door and knock it partially off its hinge. they got a big enough hole they can fit through it. Lieutenant Green is the first man through, his sword drawn. Remarkably, not a single shot touches him. Next man through, Private Luke Quinn, an Irish immigrant, recently joined the Marine Corps. He is shot in the stomach and will be the only Marine to die. Next through is Major uh, Russell, the Marine Corps paymaster, who's just along for the ride with his wicker cane. He will go charging in. And then Matthew Rupert, Corporal Matthew Rupert, will be shot in the jaw, but he will survive, probably minus a few teeth. And the rest of the Marines will come in. The fighting takes about three minutes. Brown is knocked unconscious by Lieutenant Green, and his remaining men are captured or killed. And Brown's raid, his hope for freedom, is over. He's taken over to Charlestown, Virginia, the county seat. He's put on trial, and he's found guilty of three things. Murder, treason, and inciting servile insurrection, or trying to start a slave rebellion. And for these, he is hanged on December 2nd, 1859. In his last message, John Brown will write on a piece of paper and give it to his jailer, and it reads, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood. I had, as I now think, vainly flattered myself that it could be done without much bloodshed. Of course, a year and a half later, we get the American Civil War. And it is that Civil War that will spell doom for Harper's Ferry in a major way. We're actually going to go out to the point where the two rivers meet and give you an idea of some of the destruction the Civil War caused to this place. You can follow me again. We're listening to National Park Ranger George Best on a tour of Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, recorded on October 12, 2017. This is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. April 12, 1861. The first shots of the Civil War are fired. By the end of that week, the Harper's Ferry Armory will be gone. Confederate soldiers are advancing on it, attempting to seize it. They want those machines. There are over 10,000 weapons in storage in that building, in the Arsenal buildings. They want those too, but those state-of-the-art machines are what they really want. The Confederacy is going to need those and make weapons for themselves so they can make their own independent country. To prevent this from happening, the badly outnumbered Union soldiers, there are about 50 of them, they will light the whole thing up and it'll go up in flames. Armory is gone. Now, the townspeople rush out and are able to save most of the machines. Regardless of which way they lean politically, and this area is a little, uh, leaning slightly gray, further west in Berkeley County is pretty blue, but they were more concerned about, if that goes up, that there goes my paycheck, there goes my way of taking care of my family. I need to save those machines. And so they're actually able to save about 80% of the machines. But Harper's Ferry is done for. Those machines are loaded up onto trains and sent to Richmond, Virginia, and Fayetteville, North Carolina. And Harper's Ferry goes from a bustling industrial town of 3,000 people, 
once the envy of Great Britain to just being a ghost town of maybe 300 people. Its population has decreased by 90%. Buildings abandoned. This is where the railroad station would have been. There would have been hotels and restaurants here. This is downtown. This is the business district of Harpers Ferry. You notice there's not a whole lot left. February of 1862, uh, Confederate snipers are hiding in these buildings, shooting Union troops across the way. The Union commander across the river, John Geary, has had enough. He marches his whole force across here. Well, I guess boats them across. They don't march through the river. And he burns all the buildings out here. So now there's nothing left. Eventually, the Union Army will fully occupy Harper's Ferry and make it a massive military base. They want to guard the railroads here. The Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, which still runs today as part of CSX, that is the most important railroad in the entire Civil War. It is the main east-west line for the north. And the Confederates do a lot to try to disrupt that traffic when they can. So the troops here are actually nicknamed the Railroad Brigade because they are guarding the railroads. The, the town changes hands a total of eight times. 80% of the war, though, it's in Union hands. And by 1864, they have transformed it again into an even larger supply depot. The armory buildings are cleaned up, re-roofed. They're turned into barracks, storage rooms, kitchens. They're turning out thousands of loaves of bread every day. Trains are coming and going constantly. Soldiers marching through. Spies sneak into Harper's Ferry, too. And many of the major operations in the Shenandoah Valley will be based out of here and Harper's Ferry. So this place, it is now not just a city of 3,000 people, it is a city of tens of thousands of soldiers, depending on what time you're looking at. And it will be attacked again around Independence Day, 1864. The Confederate soldiers are out on what's Schoolhouse Ridge, Bolivar Heights area, which does belong to the park. Union troops are up on Maryland Heights. In the, during the night, both sides would sneak a few men into town to take some pot shots at each other. Well, one Confederate soldier hears rumors. There's a store in town. And it's got barrels of molasses. And you know what? That sounds pretty tasty, given that I've been eating green corn and uh, bug-filled bread the last several years. And so the soldier sneaks into town. He's borrowed a mule and several buckets so he can get some of that very sweet molasses. A little flavor in life. And he knocks them open. He fills his buckets. And he ties them onto the mule. And then he just leaves them running so the Yankees have a nice big mess to clean up in the morning. And so he's leaving on his mule, and he gets just over the crest of Bolivar Heights, and the sun's coming up, so he's silhouetted. Union cannoneers up on Maryland Heights, they see him and go, you know what, let's take a pot shot at him, let him know we see him. Fire the cannon, completely misses him, but it spooks the mule. That thing takes off and keeps running for miles. A few hours later, the soldier and his mule stroll back, stroll back rather sullen into camp, dripping in sticky molasses. His fellow Confederate soldiers are so desperate for something else besides what they're usually getting for food, they're going up to him with their hardtack, the bread that they've got, and wiping it off of him and the mule to eat. After the Confederates left, they came back into town and their Union soldiers who complain about someone left a big sticky mess in one of the stores, and they had to clean it up. Now, once the war is over, Harper's Ferry has many, many, many deep scars. Many of these buildings are wrecks. They're, they have holes in their walls. Some of them were completely torn down. This area was burned. The armory is gone. What is Harper's Ferry going to do? It tries to rebuild. 
Probably the most successful thing that will take place here is the establishment of Stork College in 1867, a place where anyone, regardless of race, gender, or creed, could get a higher-level education, although it traditionally was an African-American school. It was a place where former slaves and later on their descendants could go to receive an education. And it will graduate many, many students, the most prominent of which is probably Namdi Azikwe, the first president of Nigeria. There's also Don Redman, the little giant of jazz. There's the Lovett family that would run the large hilltop house, the luxury resort of Harper's Ferry. Today it's kind of falling into the river. Um, it is condemned, people do not stay there. There are plans to renovate it though. It's been an ongoing process, so maybe someday the Hilltop House Hotel will once again open its doors. Store College will close its doors in 1955 after segregation is outlawed. With segregation gone, the state of West Virginia figures, what is the point of African-American-only schools? They can go anywhere now. So they pull their funding, and the school, which was struggling financially already, has to close its doors. It has no money left. And so the buildings, many of them are torn down, but if the few that are left now belong to the National Park Service. Two of them are where our headquarters are. Also, Mather Training Center today occupies Anthony Memorial Hall. The main campus building, it's still an educational facility. There are two training centers for the park service, for park rangers in the country. One is here in Harper's Ferry, the other in the Grand Canyon. And eventually, the park will be coming into being on paper in 1944. First buildings are acquired in the 1950s. And eventually, this will come to include the area where you're standing on. Most of the lower town district up here, a block up High Street and Potomac Street, it becomes private. Most of the store college campus and then surrounding battlefield lands. We have land up on Loudoun Heights. Actually, most of Loudoun Heights, most of Maryland Heights. We have Schoolhouse Ridge and Bolivar Heights. And recently, we acquired the Allstat Farm. All of it going to be preserved. So for future generations, for you all to learn something of the past. George, uh, yes. could I ask you the questions I ask each guest at the end of each program, the three short questions. Sure. One of them is a eureka or an aha moment in your life that changed your life. Yep. <sighs> when I first came here, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my history degree, just something with history. Came out here and realized, just as on a whim, I took an internship out here and I realized this is what I want to do. I want to be a park ranger. And I've been very fortunate in that. I've been a park ranger since uh, 2011 now. I hope to keep being one until I can't work anymore. And, the, and that was the big eureka, I guess. The, the next one is, what would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? I just want to keep, you know, sharing the stories of our past with, um, you know, everyone else. You know, it's a very important part of who we are, and I want to keep doing that and find more of these stories to keep adding on to it and keep uh, making the story more accurate, more uh, real to, you know, the people I get to share them with. And finally, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? I would say Dave Gilbert's uh, Walker's Guide. Um, it's a very good one. goes through um, building by building, but you can read it in your living room just fine. Um, let's see. Harper, the Strange Story of Harper's Ferry by Joseph Barry. It's dated. You do have to keep your salt shaker handy while reading him. He uh, embellishes a few things, but a lot of the really interesting and fun stories we get from Harper's Ferry, a lot of them we pull from that book. And then uh, if you want to do more specific to the Civil War, I would say Harper's Ferry Under Fire by Dennis Fry, our chief historian here. That is an excellent one to get you the perspective on all the Civil War stories that happened here. Well, National Park Ranger George Best, uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, on Radio Curious on tour in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. No, thank you. 
George Best is a national park ranger based at Harpers Ferry National Park, West Virginia. The books that George Best recommends are A Walker's Guide to Harpers Ferry, West Virginia by Dave Gilbert and The Strange Story of Harpers Ferry by Joseph Berry. This program was recorded on October 12, 2017 at Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. There are over 500 editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free to listen, download, and share as you wish. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org. And the phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer, and I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.